Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, visiting instructor in the history department at the University of Pittsburgh and your host for this channel. Today, I'm speaking with Christopher Herbert. Dr. Herbert is an associate professor of history at Columbia Basin College in Washington State and will be discussing his new book, Gold Rush Manliness, Race and Gender on the Pacific Slope, which came out with the University of Washington Press just last year. Welcome to the New Books Network, Chris. Great. Hi. Thanks for having me. First, why don't we begin by just hearing about you. Tell us about yourself, your academic background, and maybe a little bit about how you became interested in the field of history generally. Okay. Uh, well, my background is I'm actually uh, from Canada. I grew up in northern Canada, um, uh, ironically, because this wasn't intentional, about two hours away from the sites of one of the gold rushes that I studied. So I would go there quite often as a child, although that didn't make me the least bit interested in gold rush history at the time. It was just sort of a neat little day trip. Uh, but so I went down to Sam Fraser uh, for my BA and my MA. And I was originally, well, originally, originally interested in European history. I'd become interested uh, as a kid in World War II, you know, like so many kids are. Uh, and then thought I was going to come, you know, European history and uh, study either World War One or World War Two or something like that, and then actually took some classes and discovered that that wasn't my thing so much. Um, and I became interested in Indigenous history, so I actually ended up doing my BA on uh, the on Canadian history and Indigenous history, um, or pardon me, my MA at uh, Simon Fraser as well. And uh, when I was looking for my master's thesis, I uh, had read, of course, Richard White's um, Middle Ground, and uh, was talking with my supervisor about you know. Amazing. I thought that book was, as so many people do, and uh, she was wondering if there was anything like it near us, you know, out in British Columbia. Um, and so I, that got me thinking, and I, I was looking for some sort of context in which a diverse group of people came together and things were sort of topsy-turvy and uneven and uh, trying to find some sort of balance or, uh, you know, sort things out. And that led me to the gold rushes in British Columbia. Um, so my master's thesis ended up being this um, sort of spatial analysis of uh, the British Columbia gold rushes. And uh, that made me then interested in doing sort of a transnational approach as I got more and more into it. And so that's why I came down to the um, University of Washington uh, to work with John Finley there and do a sort of transnational comparison of the British Columbia and um, Canadian gold rushes. And by the time I got to that, my focus had really shifted not away from indigenous peoples, but more and more on to uh, Anglo-Americans, on to white folks, um, because I was interested increasingly in the, in the intersection of power and identity and how those two things fed into each other uh, from the sort of dominant top of the colonial hierarchy perspective. Um. And the book itself deals quite a bit with questions of uh, gender. I mean, manliness and gender are right there in the title. So Mm -hmm. what brought you to that topic in particular and the topic of manliness in these gold rushes that had happened in the area where you were growing up and doing your graduate work? Yeah, sure. So I had – the way I organized my undergraduate course schedule was I'd always pick like one class I really liked and then I'd have to try and fit everything else around it. And <laughs> yeah, you know how that goes, right? Yeah, it's a good uh, strategy. Yeah, except that the course I picked was always like the worst one. It was always the one that ended up being horribly boring. I just wasn't interested in. Uh, and it was the ones I, I just fit in, like the one that just happened to fit into my schedule that blew my mind. And one of those was a um, course called, at the time it was called Gender and Geography. I think it's now called uh, uh, Women's Studies and Geography or something like that. They changed the name. But it was a a gender-based geography course, and it just blew my mind. Um, It was literally, I was the only male in a class of about 300 undergraduates. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, so it was very, very, uh, it was a completely different environment than what I was used to. It used to be a far more balanced classes and not as much focus on gender. Um, you know, I think it was a co-offering with the Women's Study Center. And uh, it just really changed my outlook on uh, a whole bunch of things I just sort of taken for granted. We did this one exercise where we had to map out what we consider to be safe routes and spaces on campus. And then we compared our maps and me is like the only guy in the entire class had an exceptionally different map than everyone else. And that just sort of, again, like you know, my mind was just being blown every day, basically. Um, and so that really put gender at the forefront of uh, my thinking. And then race had always been there. I mean, my, again, background in indigenous studies as well. Um, also, uh, put both of those parts of it at the front. And then also cultural history has always been something I've just found interesting and uh, fun to do. And so all those sort of things swirling together is what led me to, to focus on, on that aspect of it in my studies. That's great. And uh, I'm always uh, I'm always happy to hear uh, and it comes up a lot on this podcast about people where their own research was shaped by something that had to th that happened to them or that they experienced as an undergraduate that, you know, these are a lot of these are the formative kind of foundational intellectual experiences for many of us. And it sounds like you were the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and to the point that I now, you know, I counsel my students and, you know, and basically anyone who will listen, you know, like, yeah, you know, take these, you know, the weird classes. They're the ones that are going to blow your mind. And you know, I have a short list of ones I recommend, you know, geology. Yeah. Like, you never look at the world around you after you're taking a geology class. You never look at mm -hmm. the same way, you know, things like that. Right, yeah, right. Absolutely. To get into the book, let's begin first mm -hmm. with just an overview of the space that we're talking about. Can you tell us about the Pacific Slope and about the Pacific Slope gold rushes in the 19th century? Where are we talking about? Who rushed to these places? How'd they get there? And what kind of settlements did they uh, find and create when they arrived? <coughs> Pardon me. Um, okay, so let's start with California. So pre-1848, California is a uh, Mexican territory. Um, but it really is, I mean, it's, it's on the fringe of the Mexican state. Uh, you have the missions along the coast and extremely limited European settlement and exploration into the interior of the continent towards the Sierra Nevada. Uh, and then, of course, you have the American conquest during the Mexican-American War. And, you know, they take over pretty quickly within California. Uh, and they're sort of camped out there. They've, they've occupied the territory. It's definitely going to be American. The, the peace is being negotiated. And while that is happening, uh, gold is discovered near Sacramento, California, which today is Sacramento, California, a place called Shutter's Mill. And at the time, there's really not a lot of Europeans there. There's the uh, Mexican settlements along the coast. There's a few settlements inland, um, you know, fur trappers and stuff up in the sort of Western Cordillera. Uh, and then, of course, the very large indigenous population, you know, 120, 140,000-ish uh, within what today would be the state of California. So it's a relatively remote uh, location. And one scholar of British Columbia, called British Columbia, that, that applies to California as well, is really on the edge of empire. I mean, it's out there. Um, and so that that's the sort of basic setting of California before gold is discovered. And then once gold is discovered in 1848, uh, you have this movement of people up from Mexico, up from Chile, over from Hawaii, from this sort of um, region writ large, you know, the Pacific region into California. And because of the geography of California, it's pretty easy for them to land in a place like San Francisco, which is the main entry port, and then move in towards the Sierra Nevada and begin looking for gold in the many rivers uh, coming out of the mountains. But the movement from the East Coast, what we consider the gold rush proper, that doesn't begin until 1849. Because what's happening is you have this news of gold, like news of gold is just, was reported in the East within a few months of the initial discovery. And yet almost nobody leaves right away. Instead, it waits until President Polk confirms with an official speech, confirms the discovery of gold. And then you have this massive um, gold fever break out along the east. And you guys begin to load up into boats and begin to cross overland. And we begin to see the flows from Europe as well. And so 1849 is when you start to have the you know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands 
of migrants begin to plow into what will become the state of California very shortly. And when they arrive in such huge numbers, the state is transformed incredibly rapidly. I mean, San Francisco goes from a small community of about 300 people to a town of 30,000 to a town of 50,000, just begins growing exponentially. Uh, settlements begin to spring up, not only in the mountains, but then you know places like Sacramento and Stockton begin to be created. <laughs> Placerville, other locations as well. So you have a very rapid um, growth in the uh, sort of immigrant population of the state. At the same time, you have this massive and catastrophic decline of the indigenous population, which will plummet over the next 10 years to somewhere between 10 and 20,000, um, partly due to the continuing impacts of uh, their specialized form of slavery in California for indigenous people that was quite damaging, um, partly due to uh, disease and to um, the destruction of habitat and uh, uh, food resources. But then also a significant portion of it was the deliberate act of genocide being carried out by the settlers. Then, oh, go ahead. No, no, sorry, oh, keep going. Okay. Oh, no, All right. Um, and then, so on the other side, uh, you have British Columbia. British Columbia is 10 years different and also has a different geography. The um, main settlement is in Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island, the big island just south of the coast of British Columbia. That's the main settlement. And there's not a lot in the uh, on the mainland or in the interior, mainly a few fur trading posts. And then, of course, a very large indigenous population. The difference is uh, in, and we'll come to this later, I'm sure, in British Columbia, the colonial state is far more robust and intact when compared to California. And the migration is somewhat smaller, and that allows the government there to maintain control so that when gold is discovered, you have that initial push up from California, and then the following year, more and more people arriving in 1859, um, into uh, British Columbia from further afield, they have to go through Victoria, get basically clearance, go over to New Westminster, which is in present-day Vancouver, British Columbia, then travel up the Fraser River or up the canyon is the usual trip. Uh, and with by about 1860, 1861, 1862, certainly, they're having to travel all the way to the Caribou, which on sure your mental image of British Columbia, you know what that looks like go about halfway up the province and then go right, you know, or east over to the border with what is today Alberta. And that gives you a, a rough idea of where the caribou is. Um, and that is an incredibly remote location. Uh, there's really no location in California that's comparable. And so that's going to have a fairly big impact on the gold rush society and on the dynamics in British Columbia is that the main gold mining area is this incredibly isolated uh, location that's way up the valley of the Fraser Canyon and then over, um, which will shape it. While the main population center, the capital, is this you know settlement on an island off the coast. So really, pretty radically different places in a lot of ways, California mm -hmm. and British Columbia. Even though you know they're linked through this shared experience of the gold rush, they're they're very different circumstances in other ways as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, yeah, I'm stressing the sort of ge geographical differences, but, uh, you know, population wise, of course, there's very, very strong parallel. Both are, you know, societies in which um, order is being challenged or uh, in California's case, um, you know, radically reinvented in some ways. Uh, and you, know, you do have these similar populations of miners. In some cases, the exact same people go to California and then go on to British Columbia. Um, there are, of course, many, many parallels, but at the same time, their their actual geographies are, are significantly different. And th that actually leads nicely into my next question, um, because as you describe in the book, um, and as other historians have pointed to as well, these gold rushes are very international events. And mm -hmm. as you argue, the people that white gold rushers in particular encountered on their way to the mines... <laughs> And in arriving in these places in California and British Columbia affected their the way that they viewed the experience of gold rushing and how they viewed themselves. So how did the experience of travel and of meeting new people, how did it pose challenges to their conceptions of white manhood? 
Yeah. So that's one of the things I argue in the book is that uh, travel to the gold rushes is a critical part of the story of the gold rushes, which mm-hmm. might sound fairly self-evident, or at least it does to me. But a lot of gold rush histories start with the you know discovery of gold and then people arrive and they just are told as arriving. Their their voyages are not um, really encounter told um, unless they're reading a specialized book on just that. Anyway, uh, so let's talk about California first. So 1848-49, we start to have this rush of migrants uh, from the East Coast, from Western Europe, uh, down and across over to California. And they're going to travel in two main streams. Uh, the ones coming from the coastal regions, uh, either the East Coast or Europe, are going to travel by boat. And so they're called the Argonauts at the time, which is a great name. And so they travel down. Um, along the coast, down into Panama or Nicaragua are the two most common. Panama is the most common. Nicaragua is the second place. And they cross the continent where it's narrow, basically, and then pick up a boat on the other side. Alternatively, they take a boat all the way around uh, the tip of South, a- South Africa, pardon me, South America, and then head up the coast that way. <coughs> In both cases, uh, the Argonauts are going to encounter, really for the first time, people from Latin America. In many cases, they feel never encountered anyone of Hispanic descent at all. Um, and they know, especially if they're from the eastern United States, not a lot about them. Their uh, opinions and understandings are shaped by a few travel narratives and by the sort of propaganda of the Mexican-American War. Uh, but that's about it. That's about all they've got. And so when they encounter these people, they begin to try and figure out, like, where where do these people fit in relation to us? And, you know, it's a given that they're going to see them as being inferior to themselves because they're incredibly arrogant and ethnocentric. Um, but it's really, you know, where do they fit? And so what they tend to do is they tend to see in Latin America a landscape of degradation, a landscape of collapse, of loss, of you know, a powerful empire, Spain, that is in decline and has been for quite some time. And they link that to understandings of race and gender of the people that they encounter, of course, most of whom are uh, mixed race descent, um, you know, combination of African, indigenous and European descent, which they, of course, tend to view very negatively. And so they link all that together and they see the decline of Spain in the Americas as being linked to the racial and gender identity of the people who live there. But the interesting thing is they then look at the role of people of European descent, white descent, and see for themselves a place as sort of the people who can get this place going again. So they have these examples, not every account, but a lot of accounts have these examples of people of European American, white American descent that they encounter in Latin America who have, you know, got a big plantation or got business going or seem to be re-injecting, uh, you know, their racial understanding of sort of northern uh, energy back into this decadent and decayed, um, you know, formerly glorious Latin American uh, colony area. And so they can see themselves as rejuvenating this colonial space, uh, as making it better. And that allows them to begin to think of Latin Americans as having a place within a colonial society, but as a subordinate one. So this is very much a vision of colonialism in which white men are going to use uh, non-whites as, uh, you know, sort of subordinated labor. Now, on the overland trail, of course, they're mainly going to encounter Native Americans. And Native Americans are far more present in the American imagination. And so Americans think that they know Native Americans far better. Of course, in reality, very few overlanders, uh, even those that had lived in the West, had really any sort of real experience with Native Americans, and certainly not with the Native Americans of the Great Plains. And what they learn as they travel West is essentially there are, you know, there are good and bad uh, indigenous peoples. The Plains people tend to be portrayed more positively, but very negative um stereotypes and uh, accounts of uh, the people of the Cordillera down into California, who they pejoratively label uh, Digger Indians. And that fits in with a sort of larger uh, arc of 
white American understandings of indigenous peoples during this time, which is that they don't really have a place within Western civilization and society and that they need to be removed or gotten rid of or forced out. And so whereas the travel uh, by ocean teaches the Argonauts that there's a place for Latin Americans and subordinated labor, the travel overland really convinces the overlanders that there's really no place for Native Americans, that they need to be removed or destroyed or killed to make way for this new settler society. And so in some ways, you have two different visions of a settler colonial society being articulated, but they, they kind of bookend with each other, right? And one vision saying no Native Americans, the other one saying Latin um, uh, Americans might be maybe okay as subordinate, subordinated and colonized labor. And what that translates into is, generally speaking, that um, the Latin Americans get a place, whereas the uh, Native Americans are almost exterminated in California. Uh, I found that whole part of your your argument in the book about mm. how the experiences of travel were um, were you know so different and how they shaped the way that people viewed the people that they encountered at the gold mm. mines and on the way to the gold mines. That was a real kind of forehead slapping moment where I was like, oh my god, of course, how <laughs> how has no one really talked about this before? It seems so apparent when you lay it out like that. It was uh, it's a really elegant and well made argument in the book itself. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I I again, there's one thing where I'm like, why is this not? I think perhaps because I'm more interested in you know that identity and power culture and power in many ways mm-hmm. um it seemed really obvious to me that if it, we're going to be talking about how someone's views of other people change and we should be looking at how those views morphed on the way um whereas i think if you're just looking at you're doing more of a traditional history of the gold rushes then it's you know what impact did they have when they got here uh, you know, what sort of society they create. And it becomes a little less evident that you should be looking at the migration as yeah. well. You know? yeah. But so one of the other interesting things then, of course, 10 years later, you've got the migration to British Columbia. And that is very different because the technology has changed. That's one of those, again, one of those neat things is that you've got the, you know, the first transcontinental railroad, the Panama Railroad, all you know, 15 miles of it or whatever, um, you know, and, but it really does change how they encounter Latin Americans. Before, they had to deal with boatmen. They, you know, they were negotiated with Panamanians. You know, there's this sort of real uh, push and pull going on. Now they just you know, get off the boat on one side, buy a ticket, you know, ride for a few hours, and catch a, catch a boat on the other side. They're barely even there, and they're disconnected um, from the environment and from the peoples that they pass. And so they just don't talk about it nearly as much. And instead... The main thing that pops up in the migration to the 1858 gold rush in uh, British Columbia really is California. That's And so you have the British migrants who begin noticing about how uh, weird and in some cases like dangerous California seems to them. And so you have this interesting sort of parallel where the earlier migrants are talking about, you know, the weird and dangerous Latin Americans and Native Americans. And then you have 10 years later, the British people basically saying, look at those Americans aren't they weird and dangerous with Republican ideals? And upon mm. reaching the mines, white miners um, begin to set up an array of systems to govern these fledgling and chaotic uh, <coughs> societies. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how these systems enforced white supremacy and attempted to uphold notions of white manhood that a lot of the miners uh, hold so dear and so close to their identities? All right, yeah. It will, so it varies again. This is um, – so one of the things that's interesting, this sort of recent spate of literature that you noted earlier about concentrating on transnational uh, connections and you know, global uh, connections between gold rushes mm-hmm. is um, you know, myself and then other scholars as well have begun to know that the gold rushes really act to glue these different societies together. There's these very strong connections. But then there's also these very strong differences in terms of national difference that government really does um, make a difference. And so we see that in this case, and that's why I focus so much on the government systems in uh, British Columbia, California. So in California, they, they set about creating a settler colonial society that really is vested in a particular vision of republicanism. And what makes it so odd is that the Republican vision for California that 
this vision of a California as a republic is one that is also very clearly a colonial society. So they want to have it run, you know, by the election, by free white men casting their votes without impediments. But at the same time, they want to figure out who belongs and who doesn't below them. So first of all, who gets to be a white man capable of voting, getting the same government, and getting, even if it's not just voting, but real access to power within the colonial state. Um, who should be, what sort of people should be the subordinated labor underneath them, or should there be anyone? Should the, you know this be essentially a, a white man's uh, area? Should we exclude others, right? And so very early on, there's a debate about uh, whether or not to uh, have California enter as a freer slave state, which is somewhat ironic because California has two different types of slavery, African slavery, and then a specialized uh, form of indigenous slavery as well. Uh, but yet they, they enter as a free state simply for political reasons. Then they debate about, in that same debate, about uh, banning uh, African-Americans, uh, people of African descent, from entering California. And again, decide, the only reason that we really decide not to do that is because of political con uh, considerations back in Washington, D.C. Of course, all of this is happening in the mounting tension that's going to lead to the Civil War. Um, so they end up creating in California, or over time they begin to articulate in California, this colonial state in which people of Anglo-American descent, so white Americans, people considered white on the East Coast, British people, English speakers of sort of Northwestern European descent occupy the top, and then underneath them, <coughs> Different sort of Western European peoples are generally considered to be okay as long as they don't rock the boat too much. And then various in, indigenous and others or non and off-white groups are at different times in different locations, either given a place to subordinate labor or are driven out or are repressed in this sort of ongoing uh, morphing that is occurring. And so there's a number of events that I talk about in this process in the book, there's, um, first of all, the state legislature and, you know, them trying to figure out what they're going to do in terms of laws, uh, how they're going to deal with some very obvious contradictions, like Trudeau Guadalupe Hidalgo, um, for instance, says that all uh, Mexican citizens in the conquered territory get to become American citizens, which means that you have this prospect of non-white peoples becoming American citizens, which, you know, they have to figure out what to do with that in California. Then there's um, the mines themselves, where you have a wide variety of sort of local governance and conflicts that are played out, where you have different groups sort of assert themselves and challenge the uh, control and the narrative being put forward by Anglo-American miners. Um, and so, yeah, you have what are called like the French and the Chilean wars, quote unquote, in the mines. Um, and then you have San Francisco, where you have this series of crises. Uh, it starts with a group called the Hounds, which are basically ruffians who have aspirations of being political muscle. Uh, and then it progresses to the first and the second vigilance committees, which are really, you know, in terms of their scale, almost unique in American history in terms of, uh, you know, mass uprisings that at least claim to be an assertion of the will of the people, but which really are a form of insurrection and political power play among a group of elites attempting to establish their dominance over San Francisco. But as they do that, also to challenge and to control immigrants and other new arrivals. And ideas about whiteness and about gender and manliness, these aren't static things, uh, nor are they the same in uh, the, the various Gold Rush settings that you discuss in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about the contingency of these concepts and how they, uh, they differed across time and across space in, in your book? Yeah, okay, sure. Well, I mean, that's... <laughs> That's a big okay, question. Yeah, I understand. Well, that's basically <laughs> the book, but all right. <laughs> I'll just try to select them. So one of the most interesting um, and, and stark differences, so it's easier to talk about, is the difference between um, the representation of uh, white men 
and uh, you know how, what they think of like being white manliness and all that sort of stuff between California and British Columbia. So in California, you have this group of Anglo-American men or groups of Anglo-American men basically competing amongst themselves and then also um, arguing with, you know, African-Americans who are pushing for equal rights, you know, Chinese-Americans who are pushing for equal rights, uh, you know, indigenous people who are resisting, um, and then all these different immigrants who are trying to assert their rights to the gold fields. Uh, the French at one point basically disband an entire military unit and then drop them in the shores of California. Uh, and so you have this sort of really complicated thing going on in California, but it all comes down really to different iterations of what view of white supremacy is going to take hold, right? Are we going to have a society in which uh, white men are dominant over racial non-others, uh, non uh, no, probably non-whites, or off-whites, or are we going to have this sort of racially exclusive society? Whereas in British Columbia, uh, because of the concerns of American, um, well, American immigrants in general, but American Republicanism more broadly, and these again are concerns that in many ways go back all the way to the American Revolution, the British colonial authority really sees the major threat uh, to themselves, not as being you know the indigenous population or anything, but rather the American immigrants. The concern is that the American immigrants are going to come up during the gold rush, and they're going to end up launching a revolution or in a filibustering expedition or something like that, uh, and they're going to try and you know topple the government or they're going to be a problematic presence. And so, in order to set themselves apart from that group and by setting themselves apart assert their superiority over the american immigrants british colonial authority in, in british columbia really makes a point of emphasizing that uh in british columbia uh the government is colorblind that they essentially they don't see race um which, of course, on the one hand is bogus, but it's also in some ways shocking, you know, for the 1850s and 60s. Uh, and so one of the things that they do, and actually they're doing right before, it continues on, it's parallel to the discovery of gold and the, the one that starts to rush on the Fraser River, um, is they go and they invite a large population of African-Americans who are looking basically to flee California in the lead up to the Civil War, and they invite them up. British Columbians. So you have this movement of African Americans, along people of African descent from throughout the British Empire, into British Columbia, where they're given uh, and make a sort of privileged position. So the first police officers of Victoria, so them are African American. There's an African-American rifle corps, volunteer rifle corps that's founded. Um, African-Americans are – one of my favorite stories in the book is uh, the the leadership of British Columbia. The elections are based on land ownership, and with the massive movement of migrants into the colony, more and more people can who are British subjects own land, and that's threatening the sort of stranglehold of control that these uh, – the British colonial elites that were already there had over the society. And so there's an election coming up and they could actually lose for the first time. And so what they do is they approach the African-American population. They say, listen, we don't have a naturalization process here in the colony. So there's no way for anyone to become a British subject. However, you don't need to worry about that because the Dred Scott decision stated that you weren't citizens of America. So therefore, you don't need to be naturalized to become British because you're not American. You're just sort of default. You're automatically British by just being here then. So you get to vote. And so this African-American population, of course, took up the leadership of uh, British Columbia on this offer and then voted in the next election. It's a big block. It's like 50 votes. Um for the leadership and put their candidates over the top in all the races. Um, and so you have this sort of different understanding of what it means to be a white man emerging in California and British Columbia. On the one hand, it's in California, there's sort of this sort of more um, uh, clearly racist sort of conception of it, whereas in British Columbia, they're at least claiming to have this this different vision in which the whiteness doesn't matter as much. Of course, in reality, it absolutely does. And so what we're actually seeing is that at the same time that that is going on, these underlying similarities that are emerging. So 
those will change and morph over time. Earlier in California, you had had the emergence of uh, white manhood that was very much um, based on this idea of we're going to go out to California, we're going to stay there for a short period of time. Uh, I'm going to have to get myself dirty. I'm often middle class, respectable, and here I am going to have to dig through dirt. I'm going to be faced with failure. And so ideas of white manhood are going to have to shift and change a bit in California, but it's seen as more temporary, and then you come back. And it's a, a performance or a test in California. But by the time you get to British Columbia, that's beginning to fade in movement um to the gold rushes, it tends to be seen as more permanent, partly because some of the people who are going have been out there for years now at this point. And so you start to see ideas of what it means to be a white man also becoming more permanent in some ways. Um, like they're not asserting that this is just a temporary thing that they're doing, but rather it represents who they really are. And that line of narrative becomes more dominant in British Columbia. The act of uh, dropping one's life and traveling out to the gold rush mines in order to stand, you know, either either underground and doing some mining or standing in a creek somewhere to do placer mining. This is a, a real gamble. It's a, it's it's a risk. And you talk a lot in the book about the importance of risk to people's conceptions of what it meant to be a man or what it meant to be white in California and British Columbia. So can you explain a bit the relationship between race and gender and risk and the idea of gambling in gold rush societies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the interesting things I found is I started to go through uh, the miners' letters and, and stuff in various, <coughs> pardon me, in the various um, uh, different sources uh, and archives, was that they were talking all the time about risk. Be really curious as to why that was the case. What, what was so interesting and so necessary about that language? And um, what that led me to was that these miners are coming from a society in which, uh, yeah, you know, stereotypical, right? If you're not familiar with the time period, we often call this, um, you know, the Victorian era, right? In which the idea that hard work is supposed to lead to reward, uh, and that success in life is a result of hard work, and therefore success is a measure of your moral character, right? Because if success follows from hard work. And therefore, success can just be just keep trying, just keep going, get knocked down, get up again, get knocked down, get up again after that, and just keep going. Um, and yet they're coming out to the gold rushes and they know really nothing about geology or about you know, gold deposits or anything like that. They really have very little scientific understanding. And so mining really becomes just a gamble, right? You just pick a spot on the ground and start going and hoping you strike it rich. And so they increasingly at least begin to notice or talk about at least that, you know, the, the good people, which of course is always a person writing the letter, notices that while he's sitting here mining away uh, and getting nothing and slowly starving to death, the guy beside him who's, you know, drunk or lazy or a sailor or not white, you know, is some sort of degraded person is striking it rich. And so there's this story in uh, the California Gold Rush, and it's probably apocryphal, but it has this uh, drunk miner going up to the top of a saloon on a hill because they were, they were on top of hills in the early gold rush. They didn't realize that gold could be in the hills. They thought it could only be down in the rivers, so they put um, all the buildings up on the top of hills. Anyway, he goes up to the saloon, gets himself royally drunk, stumbles out of the saloon, falls down the hill, lands in a ravine, bashes his head against a rock, and he's, he's lying there unconscious. And when he wakes up in the morning, you know, thankfully having not died, he sees a giant, you know, nugget underneath his boulder. <laughs> At which point he promptly states a claim and then takes out thousands of dollars worth of gold. And so here you have a, a drunk basically falling down a hill and striking it rich. And the guy telling the story is inevitably this, you know, hardworking, you know, guy writing a letter home to mom saying, yeah, I've been you know, trying to go to church every Sunday and all this sort of stuff, and I'm I'm dirt poor, and yet that guy over there is getting is getting rich. <coughs> Pardon me. So you have this uh, this problem where 
reward doesn't seem to be tied to work anymore. The, the work reward relationship has broken down. And in they, they're well aware because both to themselves, but also the, to their audiences back home, the men writing these letters and these accounts, that this makes them look like failures. By the standards back home, this is a moral problem that's on them. And so they need to find a way to explain their failure without putting the blame on themselves. And so they start talking about Fortuna, about uh, the, the Greek and Roman deity of uh, luck, right, uh, who's blind and her symbol is the wheel of fortune. And so she sits there and, and men sort of beseech her uh, to, to cast her favor upon them. In other words, it's a courtship ritual. And so what you have is these men talking now about mining through the lens of a courtship ritual in which they're trying to win over this woman, Lady Luck, named Fortune. They're trying to win her over. But, of course, the courtship ritual is about the only time during this uh, in this era in which the women have the power, right? And so it allows men to say, you know, I did my best. I, I tried to woo fair lady, as they often say in these letters. You know, I tried to woo the fair lady, but you know, she rebuffed my advances. In other words, it's not on me; it's on her. So it's not really uncoincidental <laughs> that they're talking about luck in the sense of a feminized deity, because it allows them essentially to put the blame on a woman. Says it's her. She's capricious. I'm. I'm still good and moral. I'm working hard. Uh, and it's, therefore, it's not my fault that I haven't succeeded. It's her fault. Now, by the time we get to British Columbia, the mining technology has changed, and that's led to reconceptualization of uh, Dame Fortune. What's happened is they started to figure out how to find gold a bit better, and they've the idea of risk is just being sort of luck has transformed now into something that can be managed. And so it's become a way to test. You can start to use skill to manage risk. So instead of just putting all your eggs in one basket and money in one spot, you can take out several different claims in different areas and uh, you know explore them and average it out. In other words, manage the risk, diversify your investments, in other words. And so risk has become something to be managed, which means that the work-reward relationship has begun to be reconnected in British Columbia. So that has pretty big implications in terms of how they think about risk. On the flip side, the other major aspect of risk is in their um, leisure activities, which uh, one of the big ones is gambling. Gambling is a huge deal in California, and they spend you know, a ton of time talking about it. And it's very problematic because of the way the gambling seems to break down barriers between people. It's a mixing of people. And the people who are often not the good ones tend to win, or at least that's how the stories go. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, and so, again, risk and gambling really become symbolic of uh, the California gold rush. In British Columbia, gambling isn't such a big deal. One, they managed to figure out what to do with the risk of mining itself, but then also they just have different attitudes towards leisure gambling as well. As long as it's sort of private and um, not, you know, massive gambling halls with you know prostitutes hanging around and stuff like that, they they really don't care as much. And so what happens is they they end up focusing on other things more. In British Columbia, the focus is instead of on gambling halls, it's more on moderating and policing interracial relationships, uh, which seems sort of counterintuitive. We tend to think of that as a pretty big deal in America. But what we see in California is that that's not the case, that uh, interracial sex was seen as, again, temporary. Everything you do in California is kind of like going to Vegas. You know what happens in Vegas? <laughs> it's kind of like that with California. That's how it's understood. But by the time we did British Columbia, people are staying there, right? They're going and they're staying in British Columbia. Um, and so interracial sex means that you could have interracial children that are then, you know, you're living with and you're creating a society with mixed race children. And the whole thing has a very different um, 
sense of repercussions for the people who are involved. And so there's far more emphasis on policing bodies and on policing um, interracial relationships in British Columbia than there have been 10 years earlier in California. And again, part of that, too, is that these ideas of race and gender on a far on a far larger scale, you know, North American and European scale are also evolving and becoming more and more important to society. You know, I mean, by the time we get to British Columbia, we're into the Civil War, you know, 1862-63. And so these ideas have more resonance in general, even outside of the gold rush. Uh, something that you mentioned a couple times already that I'd like to dig into a little bit, no pun intended, I guess, um, I'd like to dig into a bit, um, is your chapter and your discussion on bodies and on the physicality of mining and on clothing and dirtiness. And again, you mentioned this, but it's worth going more into because I found it really interesting. I really enjoyed reading that chapter. Um, it was another thing in this book that I kind of, as I was reading it, thinking I'm amazed that people haven't written more about this. So can you tell us a bit about how white men used dress and thought about their physical bodies as a means of trying to create order out of these chaotic gold rushes and, and gold rush societies? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I really uh, I enjoyed writing that chapter, actually. You know, yeah, some, it's fun to read, too. Oh, you know, great. Yeah, some chapters, you know, like they, they take a while and that one did not that one just sort of flowed um yeah so what it is again the thing that we have to remember is that in california when the rush begins <coughs> the world that these men are leaving whether they're leaving from where the western united states at the time you know mississippi tennessee sort of region or um whether they're leaving from the East Coast or they're coming from Britain, they're coming from worlds in which they know people. And if they don't know them personally, they exist within these networks of community, of church, of family, so that they can know somebody's reputation. Um, and that's really how they, they understand and see each other, right? They, they have all these social networks in place that allow them to evaluate them themselves uh, and understand their own place, but also to evaluate other people. Then they come to California, and not only are they moving away from all of that, they're also moving into this society which is incredibly disordered in which things that are completely uh, forbidden in the East, like gambling, for instance, um, are widespread in practice there. Uh, they're, they're moving into societies in which people tend to dress the same. So there's what they call the miner's costume, and not costume is in like you know clown outfit or something, but um, – like uh, just a set of clothes. And so there's a very standard set of clothes that is practical for mining, you know, rubber boots, jean pants, flannel shirt, usually red or blue, floppy hat to keep the sun off you, right? And so almost all the miners look pretty much the same. Uh, they tend to physically start to look the same too. I mean, you're eating the same sort of diet, doing the same sort of work. You're going to tend to look pretty similar. And then on top of that, you don't know who these people are because they're not from your home community. You don't know people who know them. That sort of thing. You don't go to the same churches. I mean, barely anyone is even going to church at all in California. For and then to add it all, make it all even worse, people are using nicknames all the time. Well, the most common nickname was uh, Pike of all the people coming from Pike County. So you have these nicknames of which a lot of people are using the same nicknames, you know, and be like everyone being called champ or something. Uh, and so you end up with this situation where you just don't know people and, and a society in which you're supposed to judge people based on their characters and you have no way of knowing them becomes very difficult. And so what they do is they begin to put real emphasis in California on appearance, on what they look like. And this isn't, again, a new thing in California. They believed in this in these coasts and elsewhere that people's characters were reflected in their appearance. The difference was in those circumstances, they knew the people characters and then they believe that they saw that character reflected in their appearance here they're basically flipping the relationship and saying well i don't know this person's character but i see their appearance and therefore their character must be this and so dress and clothing becomes a really important way to signify a claim to a particular type of uh white manhood believed to be suitable for california and uh, they do this by drawing really strong lines between themselves and different groups. And so a couple of those, right? So you have the, the seasoned hardened miner. He's got the ripped jeans, the, you know, the ragged flannel shirt, you know, floppy hat that's all beat up, right? They've clearly been out mining. They know their way around. They're the sort of uh, ideal. 
And then they talk quite a bit about the progression from what was called a greenhorn miner to that seasoned hardened miner. And so the greenhorns, <laughs> pardon me, are the fresh off the boat or, you know, freshly arrived overland um, people who are, you know, naive, their clothes are brand new, uh, they're hardworking, they're eventually going to become seasoned miners. But right now they're sort of like, you know, pretty naive and out of touch. They're not there yet. They're still East Coasters. They haven't been toughened up yet, right? <clears throat> and then once they, they do, they'll their appearance will transform as they become tougher. Now, they contrast that sort of the, the good uh, greenhorn who will become a hard miner with the dandy. So the dandy is like the opposite ideal of manhood, this over-civilized, over-feminine, urban dandy who cares more about appearance and uh, just simply if they're there to mine gold, just sort of expected to be right in front of them, they're not willing to put in the hard labor. They're not willing to work like middle class, pardon me, like working class people work. And that's one of the big things about manhood in California is that this, it becomes a way for what are generally middle class white men or men with aspirations to middle class identity to reconcile that with doing manual labor that in many ways is working class. And uh, so they do that by stressing the difference between their appearance. They stress the difference between themselves and gamblers. Again, gamblers are too well-dressed. They're too urban. They're too um, civilized in that way, uh, sophisticated. The uh, some of the other ones they use they use their appearance to contrast themselves against array an array of uh, non-white uh, uh, others. Uh, for instance, the Chinese. One thing that they do with the Chinese, they spend a lot of time talking about the Q hairstyle, which was the you know shaved front forehead area and then uh, braided hair down the back. <laughs> Which was a symbol of um, of uh, that person's submission to the Qing dynasty, essentially the loyalty to uh, the Manchu back in China. But they thought, of course, long hair is womanly, it's effeminate. And so they see the Chinese as extremely effeminate because of their hairstyle and also because their clothing looks to them to be sort of these baggy, uh, loose, almost, again, womanly sort of clothes. It doesn't help that the women's dress reform movement, which is happening at the same time, in which you have these, for the time, these sort of radical feminists arguing that women should be allowed to wear a sort of half pants, half skirt thing um, called bloomers, looks vaguely like the sort of traditional Chinese dress. And so they link these two things together. These women who are sort of daring to challenge uh, male supremacy. And then the presence of these non-whites in California, uh, who also are seen as a problematic population. So that allows them to paint the Chinese as even more effeminate, and then also to sort of smear women's dress reformers with uh, racial implications of the Chinese, right? And degrade what these women are trying to accomplish by linking them to the Chinese bodies, uh, to their dress. Um, and so what you see is that the dress just becomes this very important way for them to think about who they are and to claim a particular identity. And then, as I say, by the time we hit British Columbia, these attitudes are starting to change. In British Columbia, they start to realize that dress is not a great way <laughs> to judge people. It still matters, but the emphasis is beginning to fade. And that's because, uh, you know, as I say in the book, dress can function as a disguise, right? People can put on disguises and pass themselves as something that they're not. And it's, you know, relatively easy to do. And so, again, in keeping with the greater shift to logics of race overall in society at this time, they begin to talk more and more about the bodies and about how bodies matter and begin to examine and regulate bodies of both white people, or people who claim to be white at least, and then um, also non and off-white. And so I talk about how they begin to use various sort of medical um, exams and criminal exams to link the bodies of non-white people to criminal propensities and to biological threats to the white bodies uh, themselves, right? So non-whites increasingly become portrayed as you know, carriers of disease and um, criminality and that sort of thing. 
<laughs> at the same time, the miner's costume in British Columbia has started to sort of morph itself. The basic mining clothes look the same, but they will they start to combine things in a new way. So one of the things that happened was uh, men in California uh, had begun to wear beards, which was really radical for the time period. It wouldn't reach mainstream acceptance until most places after the Civil War. But most men in California are wearing beards. And they will shave it off when they return back to the East Coast, or often they'll even shave it if they go into town on the weekend, that sort of thing. But by the time we get to British Columbia, there's a lot of pictures of men in suits at weddings, but keeping their beards, right? And so it's this sort of uh, changing and morphing understanding of what it means to be a white man, that their identity is becoming, again, less transitory. One of the things is I mentioned before is California is seen as something you go to and then you come back from. By the time we get to British Columbia, these men are saying, no, what I am in British Columbia, if I return is still my core identity. I'm, I'm this special kind of man um, that can make it in British Columbia. And part of that is symbolized by continuing to have beard even when you're dressed up fancy to go to a wedding or to go to church. <laughs> Once the era of gold rushes ends in uh, the Pacific Slope region, um, what, are their, what, what are their legacies in terms of race and gender in the American West, do you think? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. So a bunch of different ways to take that. I mean, first of all, they leave behind, in both cases, uh, these colonial societies. In uh, California, you have this very explicitly racialized colonial society. Um, you have the devastation of the indigenous population. You have the subordination of various non-white groups. In British Columbia, you have the rhetoric of colorblindness continuing still, but it's not um, it's not being kept that way in practice. In practice, what's actually happening is that British Columbia in many ways is coming to resemble a uh, somewhat less violent version of California, at least in terms of attitude. The rhetoric still remains about national difference. But in practice, white supremacy is really becoming the uh, touchstone of British Columbia as well. <coughs> Pardon me. Those ideas then are carried on into other mining strikes and into other mining rushes. And again, this should be on the scope of my book. But, uh, you know, so I, I can't speak with 100% certainty here. But you know, I would bet a considerable amount of money that you would see a similar process emerging in Colorado and Idaho, uh, in Dakotas, um, and the various gold and silver strikes that occur after this and that draw from that same population or part of the same sort of system uh, are going to have similar influences and conversations coming out of California into those rushes as well. Of course, back in California and British Columbia, it's all, there is, of course, going to be transformation that will happen afterwards, mainly as we shift in California to agriculture being the dominant industry. And in British Columbia, things like you know fishing and logging becoming more dominant. That will cause a bit of a transformation. The demographics will shift. And so some of that influence uh, will be lost. So I think the bigger influence will be as it moves out and hits those other mining areas, uh, you know, those other similar sort of social circumstances. And then I also argue in terms of my conclusion that there's pretty suggestive evidence that what happens in California becomes part of the conversation that encourages that later transition in the late 1800s of from manliness to ideas of masculinity. Um, that much of what happens in California and British Columbia sort of suggests or seems like a, uh, an intermediate step between these two different gender ideas of, of white manhood and white masculinity um, that will happen, you know, 30, 40 years after the end of the gold rushes out west. And so I think that some of those ideas uh, were carried back east by gold rushers who were returning and the stories and the letters and then the plays and stories about the gold rushes and had an impact on the men who then grew up at that time. You know, guys like Teddy Roosevelt, who grew up reading stories about the gold rushes uh, and then influenced their ideas of what it meant to be a man. 
This is not a particularly long book, but it is a very deep and very rich book. So this might not be a very easy question for you to answer, but I'm curious, nonetheless, if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away with after reading your book, what might that be? <laughs> that is a tough question. Um, yeah. Uh, hmm. So I guess there's there's a couple different like, yeah, what I mean, it kind of depends on what mood I happen to be in that day. I guess would be my answer to that. Um, in one way, you know, I hope that readers would. Uh, I'm a strong believer that the the past can help our help us see the present more clearly, and so you know, I'm not naive enough to think that I wasn't influenced by you know the life and politics of the last ten years when I was writing this. Um, and so I see a lot of uh, similar sort of conversations today about race and gender, but especially about white manhood, especially. And so sometimes it's easier to think about these things and to see them more clearly in the past first, and then sort of use that lens to understand the present. And so I, I think like the biggest takeaway I would have would just be uh, this, I, that ideas... You know, I'm sure you're familiar with this idea that uh, whiteness and manliness are often taken as the default. They're the sort of invisible default settings to how we think about race and gender. So that when we someone says race, you think blackness. You don't think whiteness, right? And when someone says gender, you think, oh, that means women, right? Um, and that isn't the case, that manhood and whiteness themselves are also constructed, are also categorized, are also changing, and are deeply implicated in systems of power, that these are not ideas of race and gender and class, for that matter, are not things that exist independent of power structures. They're deeply implicated in them um, and deeply intersect with them, and that we need to understand them as a sort of cohesive whole, really to get a, a fair picture of what's going on. So that would be like my sort of big, you know, meta um, takeaway. More specifically, I would hope that uh, people who are interested in the gold rushes or the history of the American West, no, I guess people who are interested in the history of the American West would see that the gold rushes are not this um, sort of ephemeral event. They are, they're often sort of put to one side in broader histories of the American West. Like, oh yeah, there's the gold rush. And then we'll get back to the real history of the expansion of you know, ranching or something, um, and that they're not. They're, they are these really important moments in transforming not only the, the regions that they specifically affect, but they have all of these spin-off impact as well. <laughs> and so that the ideas and that are created there are, are really important and need to be considered more broadly, both histories in the West, but then as also as linking those Western histories to a broader global and imperial context. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's another one that I would say as well. It would be the the need to consider, especially for Americanists, the need to think about the American West as an imperial space rather than as a national space uh, solely. To understand that it's in, as a colony, especially in this time period. Um, you know, think of it through those lens and to draw connections with other uh, colonies and other uh, bodies of work on empire around the world. Now that this book has been out for a couple months, mm -hmm. can you give us a preview of what you've been working on since then or <laughs> what you might be working on in the not too distant future? Yeah, uh, that would be the not too distant future. Seems <laughs> I would take a well-deserved break. Um, <laughs> and teaching, a lot of teaching. Uh, mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> I keep doing this thing where wherever I happen to live, I somehow end up writing about it, but not not in the sense of like, oh, I'm here, I get interested. But before I moved to where I currently am now, which is a few miles away from uh, the Hanford site, which is where the nuclear weapons were developed out in Washington State, um, I was uh, I started reading and hearing about the uh, development of. Um, uh, and this is in modern, in the, you know, last five or ten years. Um, hearing about the military pushing towards using uh, low-yield tactical nuclear weapons again, you know, sort of a clean and safe option. And that got me interested in the sort of rhetoric around 
and representation of uh, nuclear weapons, not from an anti-nuke standpoint, but more from a pro-nuke standpoint. Um, you know, so what is, what is the, how is the pro-nuclear weapon um, discourse evolved and changed and where's its place in popular culture? Because we've done a lot on the anti-nuke stuff, um, but the other side of the coin hasn't really been examined that much. So that's one of the things I've started to work on. I've also started to work on um, some uh, big early studies of the intersection between uh, Native Americans and uh, Mormons in the West as well. So those are my, my two big things right now. I immediately start thinking of how often in science fiction, uh, either nuclear weapons or in the case of some of the older Star Trek movies, nuclear power are actually the saviors yeah. of humanity in certain ways. That sounds yeah. like a really cool topic. I'd yeah, yeah. read more about that. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, and that's actually one of the first things that clued me off, too. It's like, it seems like in every single movie, up until fairly recently, whatever the threat is, nuke it. You know, Armageddon <laughs> will put a nuke in the middle of that exactly. asteroid. Like, I mean, right. and, and, I mean, like, every time, it's like, that ain't nukes. Like, yeah. Restart the Earth's core, nuclear weapons. I mean, <laughs> you know, secure all. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's great. Yeah. Um, Christopher Herbert is an associate professor of history at Columbia Basin College in Washington State. His new book is Gold Rush Manliness, Race and Gender on the Pacific Slope, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2018. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 